He has sold over $5.5 billion worth of car dealerships, and he's ready to share all his secrets. Today, I'm speaking with Alan Haig, the founder and president of Haig Partners, a dealership buy-sell advisory that helps dealers maximize their value in selling their business. We discuss Alan's perspective on the current state of the auto market, the most and least desirable dealership franchises, Toyota's strategic retail moves, what's next for dealership profits, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. But before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Cars Commerce, the platform to simplify everything about buying and selling cars, including the quote-unquote follow-up. Let me explain. Dealers, fast and effective follow-up is crucial for converting leads into customers. But here's the problem. 40% of shoppers report that they are not getting timely or helpful responses from dealerships. This is a huge problem because your own team could be leaving four out of every 10 sales opportunities on the table. Cars Commerce makes it simple to measure and improve your follow-up performance. A Cars.com experience report tracks the percentage of leads your team is responding to and how customers rate those responses. While Dealer Inspire's retailing technology enables your team to quickly text follow-ups with personalized financing options to make the most out of every opportunity. To learn more about how you can measure and improve your team's follow-up performance, go to carscommerce.inc slash experience or click the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by Haig Partners. I'd like to thank Haig for coming on as a guest and also supporting this podcast. We're probably going to have the third best year in, in the history of our industry in terms of the number of rooftops that are selling. The value is still quite high for these dealerships. The values are coming down. We're going to have our best year as a firm, which is wonderful. We're, we sold a little bit fewer stores this year than last year. But the value per store has been very high. Uh, and we've had some transactions get pushed from the fourth quarter to the first quarter. And the first quarter for us, I mean, if, if everything we have that's under a definitive agreement and, and LOI closes, you know, we'll sell more stores in the first quarter than we sold all last year. That's just our firm. You know, sometimes you get these fluctuations, a group of stores closes, you know, one month later, it totally changes the economics. But it's still a very active buy-sell market. We had a, one of our clients signed a letter of intent on Friday for a group of three stores that priced above the top of the range that we had estimated to him. Now, those stores included a lot of Toyota, which is maybe the hottest franchise today. We're in the market with, gosh, over 60 other dealerships where they were engaged to sell. And the response we're getting so far is still a lot of interest, but also a lot of questions. People are wondering, how do you value these stores now? Because the earnings are dropping. You know, the, the supply has come back, which means that dealers are now having to compete to sell the products. They can't just sit back and take orders. They have to go become retailers again. And in some cases, that means not charging over sticker and some cases for some products like the EVs we just talked about, there's significant discounting. One of my, one of my teammates sent me a text today for a Porsche Taycan lease. And the lease is $483 a month for a Taycan. Two-year lease, low mileage lease, I think it's 10,000 miles over two years. But, uh, no, excuse me, $423.53. I mean, this was a $95,000 car. How do you reconcile that? What's driving that? Uh, all the factories, you know, the OEMs have have committed to produce a certain amount of vehicles, a certain percentage of their vehicles need to be EVs. And they're going to have to prime the pump. 
and somehow get the existing EVs sold and maybe begin to lobby behind the scenes, just like auto dealers have, you know, auto, I think it was 3000 auto dealers sent president Biden's administration, a letter was it two weeks ago saying we need to slow down this shift from, from ice to EVs because the demand's not there. It's creating all types of distortions and inefficiencies. They're going to cost jobs and they're going to cost consumers a lot of money and they're going to make people unhappy. And I think the politicians are going to listen because the politicians are voted into office, right? By, by consumers. And if the consumers believe they're being forced to buy products they don't like at expensive prices that don't serve all their needs, they're going to react by putting different people in power. So I think this is a, it's a technology that I think many of us want to have more of in our lives to reduce, you know, the carbon footprint that we're putting out there. But uh, dealers are on the front lines. They're kind of the, the grease between the consumer and the factory. And they're saying loud and clear, the dealers, that this push towards EVs is coming too soon, too hard. And many of them point towards Toyota as a rational proponent of hybrids. Uh, where you can have the benefits of a plug-in hybrid can go 40 miles on only EV power, which satisfies maybe 90% of the daily trips or 40 miles or less, but still have the range to drive 400 miles if you need to go to grandma's house or in South Florida, escape a hurricane. You, know, you can just get in the car and go. I want to ask you two questions there. First of all, just the table site. You put out a quarterly report called the Hague Report, right? We're linking in the show notes below. Super, super in-depth, comprehensive report on the state of the car market. And then with an even more in-depth onto just car market M&A, dealership M&A. So highly recommend checking it out. You mentioned in the Hague Report, right? Dealership profits are down 17% year over year, still up 2.5x from pre-pandemic levels. Yet valuations remain more or less the same. How does this make sense? What are people seeing in the car market what are they gravitating towards? Well, profits drive value. And when the pandemic hit, initially there was a deterioration in dealership values because buyers weren't sure how long this pandemic was going to last or what the impacts were going to be. And sellers were also a little bit scared, wasn't sure how long it's going to be and what would the values be after the pandemic ended, if it ever ended. So the dealership values dropped maybe 15% in 2020. And then we saw them just take off and they, they really grew. And when I talk about dealership values, I'm going to focus on the goodwill component, the intangible value. You know, real estate hasn't changed that much the last couple of years. Other asset values, you know, are kind of set by the market, but the goodwill value is what varies a lot based upon the profitability of the business. And so as the profits took off and profits tripled, more than tripled at the average dealership, blue sky values went up about two and a half times. Uh, they didn't triple like profits did because buyers knew that eventually or buyers knew that eventually these profits would begin to decline and go back somewhere towards where they were before the pandemic hit. So profits tripled, dealership values went up about two and a half times. Now they're trending back down. We estimate that dealership values have fallen 17% since the end of 22. So that's a material change, right? So it's down 17% from the, I call it almost the peak in 22. And our expectation is that they're going to continue to decline on average as the supply increases, supply gives, you know, less leverage to the dealer, more leverage to the consumer. Interest rates are still pretty high. Next year, they're going to come down, we hope. 
but floor plan rates are high. There's been inflation, et cetera. So the new vehicle grosses have dropped, gosh, 25%, according to our math on average, since the end of 2022. Used vehicle grosses have dropped 13%. F&I is flat. Fixed is up. That's been a wonderful source of incremental profit for dealers, and it demonstrates the strength of the auto retail model where you might suffer in one department, but you can make up for it in a different department. Correct. And for anyone listening, a couple terms here to define, right? You mentioned Goodwill. Goodwill, you're referring to Blue Sky. Blue Sky Goodwill, same term in car business. Fixed, of course, you're referring to service department, parts department at a dealership, pretty much anything that's not sales or you know the finance income that, that dealers have. That's right. When you're referring to Goodwill has risen for dealerships, is it that the actual absolute value has risen because profits are higher? Or is it that the actual multiple has risen, meaning I may have paid four times on earnings of a dealership, and now I'm paying five times earnings of the dealership, or a combination of both. What is it? I think the so a multiple is two factors that go into calculating goodwill. And for a tr- traditional dealership buyer, they're looking at a, a multiple of pre-tax earnings that they expect to make in the future. And sometimes the best predictor of the future is the past, right? So if, if before the pandemic hit. Dealership profits were very flat for five years before the pandemic hit. So you could take a look at last year's profits and estimate that would be the same as next year's profits. And different franchises trade for different multiples. So Porsche's are super desirable franchise, very rare. They almost never come for sale. When they do, people pay a lot. They might pay nine or 10 times the prior year's earnings for a Porsche store. Ford dealership, uh, General Motors dealership, Stellantis dealership, they're way more numerous and so they're, frankly, there's less competition to buy those. There are more options for buyers, so they don't pay the same multiple. So I think, you know, when the pandemic hit, it kind of scrambled the math for buyers because the earnings were going up significantly. So as a dealership buyer, you kind of had to project, well, how, how far will they go and how long will they stay up there? So we started to see some different formulas being used rather than just last year's earnings it was a combination of maybe last year's earnings and the last 12 months earnings, they average those two together to say, well, it's going to go up, but it's not going to stay up. It'll be somewhere between pre-pandemic and pandemic levels. And that formula has evolved, car dealership guy, over the last couple of years, and it's evolving again now, where for certain franchises, the grosses have come down significantly. Like at Stellantis, you know, I, I think the average Stellantis store today may be making the same or less than it was in 2019. So any, any buyer that's buying a Stellantis store is just going to throw out what happened in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, because those profits are history. Now they're going to wonder how long is the current state going to continue where they have too much supply and therefore their gross profits on the front end are too low. So for Stellantis, it's a totally different math than, for instance, at Toyota or Honda, where they're still in a situation of very short supply. They have excellent product coming out. We have one Toyota we're representing. It's very profitable. It's over $20 million a year. Their profits are higher over the last 12 months than they were in 2022 or 2021. They're still going up. So to us, that business is- How, how do you explain that? How is Toyota doing so well when their market share keeps declining? I don't know why they've had a harder time producing units compared to the Korean brands. The Korean brands did an excellent job keeping their dealer supplied during the pandemic. They didn't seem to have the same chip shortages as some of the Japanese brands did. So, you know, there's the Korean 
manufacturers maybe done very well because they've been selling a lot of cars without having to discount them. Some of the Japanese brands, and, and I would say Honda and Toyota, both suffered from the lack of supply the last two, three years. They may not be making as much money as they could have. They had more products to sell. But for the dealers, they're still in the situation of undersupply when it comes to consumer demand. And Toyota Financial Services is an excellent captive finance company for Toyota dealers. They get a lot of deals placed that other lenders might not place. So they're a great source of success for Toyota dealers. And now they've got this new wave of products coming out. Haven't really hit the showroom floor. So I'm not sure that Toyota has peaked yet in terms of dealership profits. You have the new Tacoma coming, the new 4Runner, the new Land Cruiser is out. There's a lot of really good truck products coming that are going to bring full, full price, if not over, full sticker for those when they are beginning to show up in dealers' lots. So, you know, what is the right multiple to use? What is the right formula for an auto dealership today? I'm going to give it all depends response. It really depends upon the franchise. For Stellantis dealers, they could probably project the next 12 months or go back to the last 12 months, but we've totally lost the COVID bump for Stellantis uh, dealers. For Toyota dealers, we're still on the COVID bump. And, and I think we're going to be in it for at least another 6, 8, 10, 12 months, especially if these new products hit and are as successful as they seem like they will be. So you think Toyota's is it that inventory won't rebound to equilibrium and, you know, should consumers still expect just high demand markups and whatnot for a Toyota product? I think so. I mean, they have products that are very affordable. Like you could go get a Camry today. I think they're available on many dealership lots for maybe $30,000, $28,000, $30,000. Camry is, as a, to me, that is all you need in the vehicle, right? It's large, it's comfortable, it's fast, got a lot of technology, excellent reliability, excellent resale value. For thirty some thousand dollars, you know that's a great value, and it supports the Toyota dealers. They may not make a lot of money on that Camry, but that car is going to come back for service for 50, the next fifty thousand miles. That, that dealer is going to be able to service that vehicle. And whoever is buying the Camry may come and trade in a, you know, four or five year old Corolla, perhaps, and that's going to make a great used vehicle for that dealer. So it's just a, I mean, the Toyota business model is one that I, I'm sure many other OEMs look at, and, and I would hope they try to emulate it because the consumer is happy, right? They get a great product at a great price with great residual value. So that's overall is a positive experience, very good financing available. The dealers are really happy. They feel like Toyota really is their business partner and supporting them and success of their business. And I think Toyota had record profits last last year. So it's just a win, win, win right now in the Toyota. And I say Toyota, I should include Lexus in that as well. And it's really not the only brand that's doing really well. I mean, we're representing a number. Look, when when you say brands are doing well, the first thing that comes to my mind is profits are high, right? And dealers are chasing that brand. And likely dealers assume that that brand will continue doing well because the product is desirable. Like that, that's kind of the full circle in my head. And so knowing that, what other brands are dealers kind of flocking towards? And what does that tell you about the product? I think Honda's also been in a situation of undersupply. So the products that they are making available to the, the dealers are selling very quickly for strong margins. BMW, we're representing a number of BMW dealers now, and their margins have stayed very high. The fixed operations are excellent. 
I've been trying to buy a BMW. They're not in stock, you know, at least the ones that I'm looking no, for. No, I'm, I'm smiling because you said the fixed operations are excellent for BMW. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> the, the parts and service business for dealers. And that could mean two things. It could mean the vehicles break, or it could just mean that people drive them a lot and want them to be well-maintained. I would say in terms of vehicles that break, you could put maybe Land Rover in that, in that bucket. Land Rover is another franchise that we're representing right now, and we're seeing excellent profits in that brand. And that, from a consumer standpoint, you know, is a little bit, maybe they don't love it because this client we have, their average front-end gross is $15,000. They're making an average of $15,000. That doesn't include finance and insurance profits. That's just the spread between what they cost to buy the vehicle and what they're selling it for to the consumer. That's about as high as we've seen. On a Land Rover? Yeah. That's about as high as we've seen with anything except for maybe Bentley, Rolls, Mother, uh, Ferrari type brands. And you're saying that that is the average per unit profit that you're seeing right now? Across the At country. that dealership. Yep. Because wow. there's just so much demand for that product. I mean, the design of the new full-size Land Rover and the Sport and Defender, those three products are red hot. Consumers really want to buy those products, but they do have a reputation for, for breaking. So not only as a dealer making good money selling those vehicles, but they come back to the service department for, for various items. Did you see the news from out of the UK about Land Rover, the theft? Did you see that? No. So, yeah, I mean, there's apparently a big, big issue in the UK with just thefts of Land Rovers. And what's happening is insurance costs are like rising astronomically and the values are taking a massive hit because of it. And so I first heard about this like three months ago. I got um, one of a follower DM'd me from the UK, say, hey, listen, I just want you to know I have a Land Rover here and like I can't get this thing insured. It's absolutely crazy. And then this morning, I see Bloomberg put out an entire article about it. And I'm like, oh my God, wow, this is like coming full circle. Well, I heard that about Hyundai Kia, that it's easy to somehow replicate the key, can somehow... Thieves can listen when someone's using their key and copy the code somehow, but I've not heard that about Land Rover, so that's that's too bad. Hopefully, they'll fix that. Yeah, I think Hyundai and Kia have mostly put remedies for that in the U.S. Uh, mostly, but for yeah, for Land Rover in the U.K., it's just something to benchmark because you know I'd be curious to know if that could spill into the U.S. or if that's very much confined to the U.K. for whatever reason. It might be some technological differences. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a measure of demand, I guess. If they're stealing a lot of Land Rovers, it means there's a market for a lot of Land or maybe they see the parts. <laughs> yeah, def- definitely in the UK. So tell us about like the least interesting brands right now. What are dealers sort of flocking away from or where are you seeing the biggest declines in value? I think that there's some increased concern about some of the domestic brands. You know, the strike effectively raised the, the labor costs. I think it was for maybe estimated it was another $800, $900 in cost per vehicle. General Motors seemed to have a different outlook that they they share. They thought they could reduce that additional labor by value engineering or something. I'm not sure how they're going to just get away from it. So I think that there is some concern that the domestic three will be at a greater cost disadvantage compared to the the other brands that are now making cars in America, Kia, Hyundai, Toyota, Subaru, Honda. I mean, all those, they're all competitors, right? So I've heard some people concerned about the domestics. I think Stellantis, I mentioned, you know, it's very unfortunate what's happened there. They had such a great run going. Dealers were making a lot of good money. And I have a good friend who happened to advise him on the sale of his business last earlier 
this year, January, he owned the Chrysler store, the Stellantis store in, in Charlotte, in Lake Norman. And he just said that Stellantis increased its wholesale prices, the prices they charge for the products and the dealers, more than any other OEM raised it. And that then raises the price to the consumer. And now Stellantis is dropping the two lowest priced vehicles out of the Jeep lineup. So Stellantis dealers are saying like, I don't have, I don't have cheap cars to sell anymore. You know, and you need that kind of starter vehicle. Someone buys a Jeep Compass or Patriot or something and they get that Jeep experience and they want to come back and get a Wrangler or a Grand Cherokee or Grand Wagoneer. But like I mentioned, and you know, if you go to a Toyota dealership, I mean, you can get a Camry, you can get a Corolla. I mean, those vehicles are excellent value for $30,000 or less. You go to a Solana store, I'm not sure how many vehicles are sitting on a lot for $30,000 or less, especially now where interest rates are high. It's putting pressure on those dealers to compensate by trying to sell more used cars. They have a hard time selling new, so they try to spend towards selling more used. And that, uh, Mike Jackson, the former CEO from Modern Nation, had a phrase that's, I think is powerful, which is there's a battle for talent and capital at auto retail. What do you mean by that? So if I am a, a general manager or a salesperson or a technician and I'm working at a Stellantis store and I see my business coming down, I see fewer customers able to afford my product, I get concerned. And so if I'm a technician or a salesperson or a manager and I'm looking across the street at the Toyota store or the Honda store or the Hyundai or the Kia store and I see their customer parking spaces are full and mine are empty, I say to myself, maybe I should walk across the street and see if there's an opportunity for me. So that's the battle for talent, right? Because they can get out of their chair and go right across the street and maybe make more money that same week. The battle for capital is if I'm a dealership group owner, I have four, six, eight, ten 10 stores, I'm going to invest in the dealerships that are making me the most money. I'm going to invest in facilities. I'm going to invest in technologies. I'm going to invest in training. I'm going to invest in marketing. I'm going to invest in inventory because that's giving me a good return on my investment. So my, my dollars start to shift towards the brands that are performing well for me and away from the brands that aren't. And so, you know, for Stellantis dealership network, if the talent moves out of that building, out of those buildings somewhere else, dealers are no longer investing in advertising and inventories and everything else, it's hard to get that capital to flow back. So that's that's the unfortunate um, phrase or the effect of that phrase that Mike Jackson has. And it's something that I really hope that the OEMs pay attention to because if you don't treat your dealers well, they react and they move to where they're treated better, just like a consumer would. You know, I'm going to just take up my my attention, my time, my money, and I'm going to go to a different address and invest it there. Yeah, it makes sense. It's like a downward spiral, you know, can only, and I've definitely had some messages from people in the industry. They've asked, they work at Stellantis store specifically and have kind of, you can see they're poking their nose, asking some questions. So what you're saying, you know, hits pretty close to home, but it's also not surprising. Yeah. And it, it's a little bit tough there too, Carl, you guy, because, you know, the some of the products they're making design-wise are great. I mean, they're really nice, you know, and they're they're trying to, I guess, evolve their brand and take it up, up market. But I feel like maybe they've gone up market faster than their traditional customers are ready. And I'm not sure they're conquesting a lot of 
customers that are Lexus buyers or Mercedes buyers at this point. Yeah. You know, I post a chart that showed the different car manufacturers and how much they've raised MSRP on average since 2019. And Stellantis, you know, topped that chart at about 50%. So is that the highest of the brands you recall? Yeah. Yeah. That's so the highest of the brands. That's Jack Saltzman, my, my former client who talked about that. So that's, that's hard. You know, meanwhile, you've had other brands like Hyundai and Kia that have brought out fantastic products, the Telluride, Palisade, that were bringing $10,000 over sticker. Now, Hyundai and Kia could have just raised the, the sticker by that or the wholesale price of the dealer by 10000 capture all that for themselves, but they didn't. They want to keep their products affordable for consumers, and they've got a whole new type of customer base in those stores now, the dealers tell me, compared to pre-pandemic, where the credit quality has gone up. They're also bringing the vehicles back to the service department for maintenance, repairs. Those are the same people that are buying vehicles from Honda and Toyota that couldn't get the vehicles they wanted. Kia, Hyundai provide a really desirable, attractive alternatives, and, and now, they're, now they're Hyundai Kia drivers. Which is pretty ingenious if you think about it. Like it was the ultimate opportunity for a car manufacturer over the last three years, right? When brand loyalty has been at all time lows because of the supply issue to just capitalize on that market. And look, Hyundai and Kia have raised their prices also a pretty substantial amount, but, and this is a big but, their day supply has remained low, which just means that the demand is still there. They're at equilibrium, unlike the Jeeps of the world or Chrysler or whatnot, where their day supply keeps climbing at these higher prices. Well, I would also say that the, the vehicle quality and size at, at Hyundai Kia has evolved because of you know the, the Palisade and the Telluride. They didn't have those products before the pandemic hit, really. And so that's one reason why their the transaction values have gone up. I mean, back to those brands, I remember hearing a story from a friend of mine who owned some exotic dealerships. And he was attending the Concourse d'Elegance out in Pebble Beach, which is the world's preeminent classic car show auction extravaganza weekend out in Carmel, California. And he was walking through the lodge at Pebble Beach, you know, the famous golf club there where they have the Pebble Beach tournament. And somebody called out his name. He turned around. He went over to this table and there are four or five guys sitting around this table. And, and he says, gosh, I haven't seen you guys forever. And these, these people he was talking to, they were the designers that used to work at Bentley, Rolls, Aston, et cetera, that he knew from when he was, because he, he was a dealer, he'd seen these guys all the time. He said, I haven't seen you guys for years. Where have you been? And they responded, we've been in Korea. We've been designing products for the Hyundai Kia group. And that, to me, explains how Hyundai and Kia evolved so much. I mean, you look at a Genesis now, the styling the stitching and the seats, the switch gear, the technology, it's beautiful. It's the same as you get in a premium, almost exotic level vehicle. And so for the average customer can show up and purchase the Genesis or Telluride, and they're getting some of that styling that only European exotic retailers used to be able to offer. So that's incredible transformation that comes from design. In addition, the, the engineering of the vehicles is you know, most reliable or long-term, you know, reliability. I think Hunger got the longest warranty in the business. You know, it's funny you mention that because I have a friend, he's a doctor and, you know, he makes probably like around three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year. And he was asking me about cars. He wasn't asking me what to buy. He was just, you know, asking me general questions. I asked him, what do you currently drive? And he told me he drives a Telluride. 
And I just found that, you know, I, I've said this story before. I always think about that because when I was starting in the business, Hyundai, that was like the back down car, right? Or I remember the the old Sonatas with that body style. I mean, that was the vehicle that you save for the customer that maybe, you know, couldn't get approved on anything else and you need it. And, and it's funny now, I speak with him, I'm like, wow, like, so you drive a Telluride. It's, it, they've definitely moved up market and they've done it with great products, great body style. Prices have moved up, you know, somewhat as well, but overall they, they've definitely executed very well. And, and, and I think that explains why there's desirability by dealers to acquire these franchises. Yes, I think that those were brands that you kind of avoided. They weren't very profitable. You know, we got some data from a reliable source years ago that showed profits per dealership location or by, by franchise. And the most profitable brands were Lexus, BMW, Mercedes, Land Rover, Toyota, Honda. The least profitable brands were some of the Korean brands. I think that's totally transformed now. And I'm happy for the dealers who had these franchises for a long time, weren't really worth their time or money and now are being rewarded. And of course, the catch is now they've got to invest a lot of money in these facilities to make it bigger and nicer. So there's there's a little bit of a fly in the ointment. So I want to dig deeper into the M&A market right now, right? So first of all, buyers, sellers, what's easier for you to find right now? There are always far more buyers than there are sellers. And, and that stayed pretty consistent? Yes. There was a big spike of dealership sales in 2021 and 2022 that was driven partly for tax reasons, partly for ec economic reasons, partly for out of fear. And then I'll talk about those separately. But when the pandemic hit, I mentioned the dealership values kind of tanked initially because people were afraid to buy a store. And so M&A just dried up for about three months. And then it, it took off again. And buyers were really confident because they could see every month how much more money they were making in their stores. And they thought, well, this is great. I want more. So I'm going to take the cash that I've made and what I'm making now and invest it in buying more dealerships. And the public companies were driving a good portion of that M&A. They bought, you know, before the pandemic hit, there were probably 300, 350 stores a year that we could tell that were trading hands in this country. And then in 2021, that number went to 700 stores. So the number of rooftops doubled for sale. That's dropped down now to, I think this year might be around 500. So we're still, you know, what's that? Roughly 50% higher, the volume. But I think sellers have said, well, I'm not, some sellers said, I'm not really ready to retire yet, but because the goodwill value has doubled or more than doubled, I can retire today and have the same amount of money as if I were continue to work three years. So it pulled forward some people who might not re be ready to sell, they just said, well, the prices are so high, I'm just going to take advantage of market conditions and get out. I think there's also, you know, technology created some more confidence in the part of buyers. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I got started in 1996 in this industry. I wrote a business plan for AutoNation. The business plan was all about national brands, economies of scale, best practices, and AutoNation would do in the car business what Blockbuster had done in the video business, you know, to kind of take over the market. And we quickly found that none of what I had written in my business plan and predicted came true. You know, we didn't have any real economies of scale. We didn't have any better business practices. 
we didn't have brands that consumers cared more about than other brands. We really just had a ton of capital that we used to quickly grow. And then, you know, over 20, 30 years, AutoNation tried to then develop some, some special abilities that would help it outperform a mom and pop operator. But when the pandemic hit, e-commerce spiked, right? Because people are saying like, I'm not going to a dealership. I'm afraid to go in there. So I have to see if I can buy a car online. And so now larger dealers believe they have a greater capability to serve consumers that are interested in, in purchasing online. They have bigger inventories. They can ship cars, you know, across these, they can share inventories across different stores. They may have a brand like AutoNation now is a national brand. Lithia is investing in driveway.com. So I have a feeling one day Lithia becomes driveway. It's what that, that company may become named. Which by the way, it's interesting because I just had the podcast with Daryl Cunningham, the CEO of Group One, that you connected me with Daryl, which I'm very thankful for. It was a great conversation, but he is completely taken the other direction. He is all about staying local. Car dealership is a local business. I am not going with one centralized, you know, national brand. So just interesting dichotomy. And he really dug into it and kind of, he explained his thinking there. So, so that, that is still out for, for the jury. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens in the marketplace because what, what I learned is that my whole business class I wrote, economy scale, national brands, best business, it was all just what should have happened because it happened in other industries, but it didn't happen in the car business because of the franchise nature of our industry and the fact that there are almost no economies of scale. You know, you buy the same product from the supplier at the same price, right? So if I've got 54 stores, I'm paying the same price for an F-150. On the new side. All they use, it's true too. You know, you're going to buy that vehicle at the market value because the customer can flip it to somebody else for $100 more, they will. Labor is the same. Real estate is the same. Utilities, pretty much the same. If you look at all the major cost blocks, the public companies don't really have much of a winning advantage or, or even large consolidated. But I think technology is an area where larger dealers do believe they're going to start to have over time some advantages over smaller dealers. So, and this doesn't have to be just public companies. If I have a dealership group with 10 stores in a market, I've got a brand name and I could promote my website as a place where people can go and shop for vehicles. And I have Honda, Toyota, Ford, Chevy. Kia, Hyundai, Mercedes, whatever. I have a broad selection of products that I can offer to my customers. And between those six, eight, 10 stores, I've got thousands of new and used vehicles in inventory. There's a good chance that if I attract somebody to my site, I can sell them a vehicle. Either just invite them to come and look at it in the dealership, or if you want to go through an online purchase, you can do that. And I would say people my age today, they still go to the dealerships. They might look online, but still want to go to the store. People my kids' age, and I've got kids in their 20s, they might be very comfortable clicking some buttons and buying a car from Carvana site on C or from AutoNation site on C. And I think this, the population is growing in that section that is interested in, in transacting online. Today, it's still small, maybe 5%. But in five years and 10 years, going to be 7, 8, 10%. I think it can. And just taking a little bit of market share every year can have a big impact on a dealer's bottom line and vice versa giving up a little bit of market share over here and you start to get into that well and i'm not selling as many cars as i used to so i gotta have fewer salespeople. i'm gonna advertise a little less i'm gonna have fewer units in inventory you start to kind of 
slowly, slowly, imperceptibly get weaker. And the other guy across town is taking that share, slowly, slowly getting stronger. It may be a trend that is over time, a little hard to overcome if you're just sitting in one, one store. Where do you think that economies of scale are like operating leverage is driven for groups that grow and are making acquisitions? What's driving that? Is it technology or is it other stuff as well? I think there's technology, but you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, training people and deploying the technology. And there's some really good vendors out there, Cox, you know, Reynolds, CDK, uh, cars.com that can offer technology to large groups and make that same technology available to, to a single store dealer. So you're not, I'm in no way ever going to bet against some person sitting in a store that's the general manager or owner of that store, because if they're a talented entrepreneur and they get out there every day after it, they're going to do just fine. And that may be what, what Daryl's talking about, you know, Daryl Kenningham, where he says that the local guys can still succeed. And, and that's been proven for decades. It's true. But I think that if you have a way to attract eyeballs to your website and you've got 10 stores in an area, I don't think you have to pay the same price per impression to get consumers to your website as if I had one store. So if I'm paying a little bit less than advertising to sell a car, that makes my the rest of my store more efficient, right? My salespeople are making more money because they're getting more, more customers. That means I've got the best salespeople. If I get the best salespeople, I'll have the happiest customers and I'll have the highest throughput. So again, that balance for talent and capital. I think there's also, you know, on the technology side, I know AutoNation pays less for its tech stack, you know, the, the products it uses in its stores than a single dealer would. I know they pay less for insurance than a single dealer would self-insured in many cases. So these little areas, and again, they're small. We pay a little bit less for technology, a little bit less in advertising, a little bit less Five percent business, baby. Yeah. So Daryl Kenningham, I spoke with him, um, I don't know, a month or two ago. And, you know, he talks about how it's a 5% business. And I think maybe you guys talked about that too. And I think what he means by that is for every dollar of revenue we make, we take in, our profit is 5%. So it's a very low margin business compared to almost any other business out there. Compared to jewelry or home improvement or anything, auto retailers make probably less per dollar revenue than just about any category I can think of. So if you can, if you can shave little portions of your expense structure off, like I don't have to have as many people because I can use technology. I don't have to pay for as much per car. I can pay less for insurance. That if I can take out 1% of my cost structure and I go from 5% to 6%, I just increased my profits by 20%, right? So when you start from a small base. Grocery store, baby. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so people like Daryl are keenly focused on getting a little bit more scale so they can reduce the average cost per transaction. And maybe they can also increase the gross profits they get from their vehicles too. If they have the exact vehicles that a customer wants, maybe they can charge a little bit more of that customer because they can transport it across 20 miles, 50 miles, 200 miles. We're in a very low margin industry, uh, relatively speaking. How do you explain this rise in the non-car business investors that are trying to enter the industry? Obviously, you have the big headline, you know, Nick Saban, the legendary football coach who's been partnered with another dealer and has made lots of acquisitions. I get messages all the time from, you know, business owners, people who just have 
idle cash that I want to put it to work in the car business. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what you're seeing in this area, how much demand you're seeing from kind of quote unquote, dumb money just from the outside of the industry. And what is attracting people to the car business for investment? People are interested in franchise auto retail because it is proven to be highly resilient to downturns and highly lucrative during upturns. The cash on cash returns and auto dealerships exceeds most other businesses. It also enjoys support of a global manufacturer that designs the product, produces the product, markets the product, finances the product, finances the dealer. So there's a lot of support for that dealer. The, the business is diversified. You know, you're in the new car business, you're in the used car business, you're in the finance and insurance business, you're in the parts business, you're in the service business, you're in the body shop business. So if one part of your business is down, you compensate in other ways. And it's a, it's a franchise system that is protected by state laws. And when I say protected, it means that if I own a Ford dealership in Orlando, Florida, Ford can't just drop another Ford point in across the street from me. There are laws that create certain amount of protection, like it needs to be 15 miles away before you can put it down. The laws say that every dealer can buy the Ford same product, the same price, that there are legal protections in place that support the longevity of these businesses. And I think that a lot of investors have said, you know, I can invest in technology and maybe one of every 10 or 20 tech companies is successful. I can invest in pharma and maybe one of every 20 drugs that gets tested becomes a blockbuster. Or I can put my money in these businesses that exist in every town in America and have been in there for over 100 years. In the Great Recession we had in 2008, 2009, General Motors went bankrupt. Chrysler went bankrupt. The average dealership made $600,000 a year. So, I mean, this is not a very nice term, but some people have said that, you know, auto retailers are like cockroaches of any retail business. They're just going to survive. Good times, bad times, doesn't matter. The business model is so strong, it's going to remain on average profitable. Now, certainly some dealerships do lose money and have lost money, but very few have closed because they went out of business. So I think investors look around like, you know, if I can get 15% on an unleveraged basis, that type of return and with some debt on it, I can get high teens, low 20s. They'll take that all day long. I will also say that it's not easy for investors to enter our industry. I refer to dealerships as sticky assets. They're hard to get and they're hard to get rid of. And what I mean by that is if you're, you want to buy a dealership, you can't just open up the Zillow website and look for dealerships for sale, right? It's a private market. Most dealership sellers don't want to interact with a new buyer. They only want to interact with somebody that believe will be approved because there's a two-step transaction process. A buyer and a seller have to agree on the price. Then the buyer has to apply to the factory to be approved to become a dealer. And the factories don't really want newcomers, nor do they want what I'll call fast money. You know, a private equity firm is going to buy a business, put a lot of leverage on it, try to pull some levers and three to five years exit the business. That's the traditional private equity model. And auto manufacturers are really interested in a long-term relationship with the dealer, 10, 20, 30 years, maybe even multi-generational, because they want that dealer to be investing back to our balance for capital and talent. They want people to invest in nice facilities. They want people to invest in training to try to attract and retain great general managers. 
long-term thinking. Exactly. You know, that's kind of the Toyota way, the Honda way. And I think the, the domestic brands kind of feel the same way. So the private equity firms, family offices that we see being successful in industry now, and there are a number of them that have done very, very well. They're coming in with evergreen capital, meaning I'm going to put this money in and there is no timeline and when I'm going to take it out. Could be in here for three years, could be in here for 30. So long as we feel like we're getting a good return, we're going to leave it at. And we're going to partner with existing, successful, proven management teams. So you don't have to worry about us being the investor messing up the business we're going to buy. We've got vetted, smart, successful, well-known management teams that are going to run these stores for us. We're just replacing one family's money with another investor's money. That's, that's the pitch that we've seen be successful. And I think that, you know, there's certainly room for more investor groups to come in if they pursue that same model of long-term partnership with proven talent, because, you know, these businesses have become so valuable and the groups keep on getting larger. You know, we're representing a transaction now where upon full sale, it's over a billion dollars. You need a lot of capital out there that could, that can buy these businesses. Can you give us a preview? Give us a little sneak peek. I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe the next time we speak, I could be more open about it, but I'm okay. still a little superstitious. I'm eager. Yeah. I hear you. But you know, every, every year there's a couple of these big, big deals that happen. And sometimes they're public companies that are the buyers, but a good amount of time, there's still individuals, families that are stepping up because they have that amount of capital to, to acquire these groups. What are you seeing in terms of dealer sentiment? Is there fear in the market? Cox Automotive puts out this dealer sentiment index, which has been taking quite a dip. But I'm curious to know from you, anecdotally, on the street with your polls, what are you seeing? Well, I would say there are kind of maybe three types of, of auto retailers. You know, the people that want to grow and they have confidence. You know, they want to get bigger. They like this industry. They want more of it. They're willing to shove all their chips in. There are people that have decided they want to exit. They're on the sell side, you know, and that's probably, I could be 20 to one buyers to sellers, you know, it could be that kind of ratio. And there are people in the middle who say like, well, I don't want to get out because I still like the money I'm making and I like having the job that I do. I like my position in my community, the lifestyle that it provides to me, but I'm not sure I want to put in more. So they're in many ways, they're the future sellers, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. If they're not going to grow. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that a friend of mine had years ago, Sam Swope, dealer out of Kentucky, smart man. He had a phrase, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. When you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. So that growth that you get through acquisitions, in my opinion, is very healthy for an organization. Because to be approved by the factory, you have to have good sales efficiency, good customer satisfaction, and nice facilities. So you have to be a good dealer in order to become a dealer of another store. So your core operations have to be healthy. But also when you acquire a business, you're usually going to absorb some talent, some young people that are in that, maybe it's just a single store. Maybe they one day could be your CFO, or maybe one day they could run your biggest dealership. You know, so these acquisitions are, are a way that organizations can acquire more talent. And then they become a snowball, right? If I've got three stores and I go to four stores, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I have more leverage with my vendors, right? Getting back to that economist scale. If I have 10 stores, okay, now I've got the ability to hire a fixed ops expert, an F&I trainer, 
digital marketing expert, and that all should make me perform better than the guy that doesn't have those special consultants or advisors in the company. So I, I think M&A acquisitions make organizations healthier and stronger and more resilient towards downturns as opposed to that, you know, if you're ripe, you're rotting, you're just sitting there standing still. People in your organization, they're ambitious. You know, if you're a salesperson and there's, you're not going to grow at all and there's a sales manager that's 40 years old sitting there, how are you ever going to get promoted in that, in that company? It's just one position that you could one day compete for. So those people may leave and join larger groups. You reminded me of something that is pretty embarrassing, but when I was in my teens, I had just started getting into like the business world, like more formally and stuff like that, you know, interested in it. And I didn't realize, I remember learning for the first time as a teen that a business is supposed to always grow. And I found that like, <laughs> it sounds so, so childish, but I found that just mind boggling because it was like bizarre to me. You know, I grew up, I had an entrepreneurial household, but immigrant family, like small business, just wasn't anything corporation. And so the businesses, as far as I saw physically, they were never growing. You know, maybe they were growing behind the scenes, but physically stuff like that to me looked like something pretty stagnant. And then when I discovered that a business is healthiest and generally speaking, it's supposed to always grow. It's so funny when you say that, because I think back to those days and just not knowing. Yeah. Well, that's uh, maybe I don't know if it's a tenet of capitalism, but uh, maybe it's not healthy. I'll be better off if we just kind of liked what we had and didn't scrap for more. I think by now I, I've seen businesses on both sides of the aisles, and I think you definitely want to be moving forward because you know the way I say it is: if you're not growing, you're, you're regressing. That's so. When you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. It's a it's another agricultural way to say it. Yeah, and it's also not just for business. I think it's actually for many aspects in life that I take pretty seriously. Lots of people listening to this podcast, you know, are looking for opportunities in this business, whether it's employment opportunities, whether it's opportunities to build a, a company or a, a technology to sell to dealers. Maybe it's consumers that are just curious to know kind of what's changing if I'm going to need to go buy my car, or maybe it's investors that want to invest. So with that said, if you're advising dealers, right, on their businesses nowadays, how are you having that conversation with respect to value creation so they can get the most money for their dealerships? or build the best possible dealership? Does it stem from a specific department? Is it, hey, focus on your service department versus this? Is it kind of more holistic? How do you think about just adding value, creating value at a dealership nowadays? So profits drive a lot of value. And I think that for dealers that are seeking to maybe sell in the next couple of years, we definitely recommend taking a hard look at their business. And, and we regularly provide valuations to, to dealers that are thinking about selling. And in those valuations, we identify areas of improvement that we think the next guy could make. And if we take that information and, and share that with the deal, like we had a presentation yesterday to a, a two owners, they own two stores. One's a Toyota store and their, their gross profits they're getting on new vehicles are good. We didn't see any room for improvement there. But their finance and insurance profits were under $900 per car. That's less than half what they should be. And then their fixed operations has actually declined over the last four years. That's also really surprising. We haven't seen that at all in any other group that I can think of. Because labor rates have gone up significantly. 
There are more people trying to get their car serviced because they can't get new cars. So almost every other service department has expanded significantly. So our advice to these folks were, well, if you want to sell now, we can sell now. We'll point these areas out to a buyer. We'll get some value for that upside because buyers will pay a little bit more if they can see a room to improve business and if it's hitting on all cylinders. And so we can, we can recommend to them, you know, well, here's some F&I companies that could come in and train your existing staff. You don't have to fire people, but you need to think about what products you're selling. How are you selling those in the store? What's the process like? Because they should be making an extra thousand dollars a car in F&I on, on new and used. And then on the fixed operations, this company had increased its labor rates by about $60 during the pandemic. So they, they pushed the rates up a lot, but none of that money is really flowing through the bottom line. So to us, that's almost an internal audit. Like, how's that possible? More ROs, more tax, higher labor rate, no more gross. There's something that, that doesn't really add up to us. So that, that we recommended, you know, hiring a fixed op specialist to come in and review how does it go from the customer drives in the service driver, even before they drive in, you know, what marketing are you doing to get customers to come in? And when they do come in, what happens between when they drive in and, and start to talk about the needs they have, and then when they pick up the vehicle, how is it that there's not more gross profit at the location? But these two departments are the ones that could be most quickly impacted by dealers. So years ago, when I was at our nation buying stores, the F&I was a real strong suit for AutoNation. It's always been one of the leading F&I companies in the country. They do an excellent job in financing their customers and providing insurance products to their customers. And then fixed operations, you know, for years it was a leader in advertising to customers. Don't just advertise in your car sale, but promote your ability to service those customers, get them back into the service drive. Those are two areas when AutoNation was buying dealerships that it focused on immediately and did have a quick impact on improving those departments. Often it had a hard time sustaining the sales levels of the businesses it bought, because that's sometimes where the entrepreneurial talents come in. You know, it's not a one size fits all in sales. You have to know the local market quite, quite well. But those two areas, if you want to add value as a dealer, I would say you can do that within weeks, you know, because if you're improving F&I, you're not really taking any business away from a competitor. You know, if you want to improve improve your new car sales, you're probably gonna have to take business from somebody. That's very, that's a very good point. Yeah. And used, again, you're competing with a lot more people on the used side. That's an investment in capital to get more products in, to train, et cetera. There is some risk in boosting your used car operations. But F&I and fixed, that is, in my opinion, the fastest way to improve the profits in the dealership using your current staff. You don't have to think about hiring new managers. Yeah, just changed some things around. Speaking of current staff, and before I want to wrap up with your overall car market outlook, last time we spoke, you were talking about talent in this, in this industry and specifically how you never knew how much money you could make in the car business. And I think many people don't. I think I've posted some stuff about it and people have been surprised by a comp that you know a general manager can make or sales manager and whatnot. What do you think in terms of growing talent in this industry, do you think we still have to make like some structural changes or systemic changes to the way dealerships operate to attract more talent? Do you think just virtue of the income that's there, more talent will start flocking to the car business? Kind of what's your outlook on industry talent 
as we just mentioned, are we progressing or are we regressing? It's a great question. I think that the amount of money that salespeople, sales managers, general managers, fixed managers, F&I folks have made in the last three, year, three years in our industry has been incredible. I was on the phone yesterday with somebody who invested in a dealership. He, 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 bar, he borrowed the money to invest in a small Korean brand and he did great things with it. He really, really grew this company significantly. And part of his pay package when he joined was he would get 20% of the profits because it was a small store. He's making like $3 million a year now, right? As a general manager of this business. And he deserves it in many ways because he took the risk, he made the investment, et cetera. And that won't be sustained probably. And you can't say that this is a path that people should just go because to make $3 million a year is remarkable, right? For anybody. But I'm hoping that this word of compensation leaks out to our industry, but I actually think we could be in for a little bit of an exodus of talent because the salespeople who are used to making a hundred, three hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a year selling new cars at over sticker, they're going to have a significant retraction in their compensation when cars are selling for sticker or less. And will they be accepting of that decline in compensation or are they going to leave and get back into mortgage brokerage business or selling something else rather than cars? So I think a number of dealers are a little afraid that as these grosses come down, as the profits come down, there's going to be a flight of talent from our industry. I would love it if it were more public, how much money you can make in the car business. One of my teammates wrote a, a piece that he published in LinkedIn, and I think it's on Twitter too, or X about GM versus MD. And he, he talked about how much money the average general manager makes, how much money the average doctor makes. General managers make more. And a lot of general managers never went to college. They didn't need that formal education. They just were good entrepreneurs and worked hard. And in many ways, they have a higher quality lifestyle. Status. I think that's one big distinction that whether we like it or not, the reality is that's how the world operates. If you're an MD, you have status. And frankly, when I was in my earlier days making more money than any of my friends, hundreds of thousands, people were like, oh, you sell cars, right? So I think status is a real big thing here. I think you're right. I have two boys that joined our, our company here earlier this year. They're 24 and 26. And I suggested to them, you should go work at a dealership six months a year or whatever to have some some knowledge, some experience. Because I'd never worked in the car business before I joined AutoNation. So I didn't bring anything to the table. I just brought some investment banking experience. But because I sat in on all of the operations meetings, you know, I absorbed a lot about what was really going on at the dealership level. And I think my kids, when I suggested that to them, you know, you would be better off in the future if you took six months or a year and worked at the dealership. They both kind of looked at me like, they didn't say no way, dad, but that wasn't what they had been raised to do. That wasn't what their peers were doing. You know, they, one of my kids was in an undergraduate business program, you know, and he was doing spreadsheet modeling, LBO modeling, finance and economics. There was no, what do you say to a customer when they walk in the door? There's none of that. You know, the other son was doing consulting. So he was working with strategic issues about how to advise companies. It wasn't 
you're going to go sit on that lot or you're going to sit in that BDC center and you're going to answer phone calls and, and deal with what it takes to get a customer in the door and then sell them the vehicle. So I think that you're right. There's still a, a change needed in our industry because the reality is I think a lot of general managers who work really hard and I think you deserve every, every penny they make will tell you that it is challenging and fun what they do, you know, to orchestrate a company of 50, 70, 100, sometimes 200 people are in these organizations and get the new car department to work with the used car department, to work with the service department, to work with the body shop, advertising, HR, IT. There's a whole, you're running a big enterprise, $100 million or more enterprise. And then some doctors, you know, I think have finished medical school and Certainly that we need physicians, right? They save our lives. They yeah, to make we culture. need doctors. <laughs> yeah. But some might say, well, I'm just kind of punching a clock. I'm working for a big company to tell me what I do, when I do it, how I do it. I'm not really ever going to kind of ever do anything different than this. And so for some people, I would think that a career in automotive, if you're interested in business, can be really exciting because within a short amount of time, you can be the CEO of significant enterprise. Versus if you go into consulting, you know, you go in, you work at Deloitte, you know, you're going to be billing by the hour to clients to get advice about technology, HR, whatever. You probably will never have a chance to really run a business and be an entrepreneur. And that's what I think attracts and retains people to our, our industry is the excitement. They love the products. They like working with people and they can make a great living doing it. Give us your outlook for the car market for the next year. I think it's going to continue to be really strong in terms of demand for, for products. We've been told by the Fed there are going to be three interest rate cuts probably the second half of next year. I think there's going to be a decline in the profit of dealerships during that time. We estimate you know dealership values are coming down 1% to 2% per month. That could accelerate a little bit if margins come down faster than what people think. But there are going to continue to be a lot of people that want to grow. They like the car business. They understand that the profits will come down. They're going to factor those declining profits into their offers. We'll still see dealership values really more than twice what they were before the pandemic. I don't think anybody really believes we're going to go back to the level of profits we were at in 2019. If nothing, just because of inflation, cars cost more. If the margin stays the same, the, the profits are going to be higher. I think there are also some entrepreneurs who say that, hey, once... The managers, the salespeople, they're used to making a certain amount of money. They want to maintain that living. So people are not going to go right back to cutting these prices to the, to the bone and making no money on the sale of a Corolla or a Camry. This won't make sense to them anymore. So I think that the business is going to continue to be strong in 2024. I think M&A is going to continue to be strong in 2024. I love all the new products that are coming out. You know, we're going to probably deal with some rocky issues on the EV side is there's an oversupply of those vehicles. I think the politicians will roll back their requirements for going all EV. And I think that the plug-in hybrids to me is a great compromise that satisfies consumers that want to burn no fossil fuels when they go to school or to work. They can plug them in and go the 40 miles, but they can also drive you know, 400 miles to, to the beach or to the mountains or to grandma's house. So I feel like that technology is going to rise in its importance to our future. You know, hopefully we'll have peace in the Middle East and in Ukraine next year. 
Amen. Alan Haig, thanks so much for coming on. If anyone wants to learn about more about you or Haig Partners, of course, you can visit HaigPartners.com. Link is going to be in the show notes below. We're also going to attach a link to the um, to the Haig Report below, which again is a wealth of knowledge. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they reach out? My email is Alan at Haig Partners. That's A-L-A-N at H-A-I-G Partners.com. And you can call me. I figure my phone is my only phone number I have. That's 954-646-8921. Look at that. Extremely accessible and easy. Love to see it. Alan, thanks so much for coming on. This was great. Pleasure talking with you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.